We began our Advent series last week. Um, we are studying um, or looking at uh, a series called Christ in the Carols. Um, if you're new here, you maybe just walked in or you're, you're fairly new here. We don't usually do topical messages. We do some. We mainly do expository preaching through, going through books of the Bible, verse by verse, uh, from beginning to the end. And presently, we're in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, a major prophet. Um, and we finished the first section, 1 through 39. We're looking at chapter 40. Uh, we begin that in January. So this morning, a little, things are a little different. We're looking at Christmas carols, things that we love, songs that we love to sing in the Christmas time. And, and we're looking to these carols, but really we're looking into the Word of God where these carols have come from. And now they've expressed Scripture, Holy Scripture, um, over the, the many years that we've been singing these songs. Our, our final authority is not the Christmas song, right? Not the carols. Our final authority is the scriptures, right? But we see these carols that we sing that are, that are really saturated with the, the word of God, biblical truth, and we're simply using these songs, as we did last week, we'll do it again next few weeks, as a springboard into the word of God. Our hope is that when we sing these songs this year, maybe years to come, it'll help us to get a, a, a deeper and a more biblical understanding of the songs, fresh insight, Right? I mean, I, I find myself humming these songs. I mean, maybe you're in the mall, you're walking around, you hear the songs, and may, maybe we're not really understanding the, the truth behind the songs coming from Scripture. So that's our hope. Last week, we looked at a song uh, that was well-known, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. That theme was hope, which we had the candle of hope. Um, this week, well, we saw last week the hope, the expectation was of the Israelites and the Jewish people that God would send a Savior. He would send a Messiah. He would send a Redeemer to rescue and save his people. And they awaited that they, with expectation, the hope of the coming Christ. And we see that in the gospel and the coming of Christ. Um, this week, the song we're going to be looking at is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Anybody hear that song before? <laughs> And the theme is peace. We saw the lighting of the candle of peace. And like last week's song, Come Thou Long Spect to Jesus, um, it was written by Charles Wesley. Another song written by Charles Wesley. His brother John Wesley is the, the founder, started the Methodist church, the Methodist movement. Um, Hark the Herald Angels uh, sing. Uh, many of the research and some of the stuff I did this week, uh, a lot of people think and believe that this was one of the most famous and best ever written Christmas carol, that you can make that decision yourself. Interestingly, though, this carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sings, was written in, in 1739. We've been singing it that long. Maybe some of you were around then. I'm not sure, but I'm getting there. 1739. What's interesting about that, though, and I read this somewhere and I looked it up just to make sure it was accurate. Charles Wesley comes to faith. His conversion is 1738. And he writes this song in 1739. It's got rich, rich theological truth in this song. A year after his conversion. Um, it, it's just amazing. Then I read also that Charles Wesley did grow up in a Christian home. So I want to tell you, parents, grandparents, and, and people who are raising children, they may not be getting it. Teach them the Word of God. Teach them the Scriptures. They may, you may be thinking, ah, they're not getting it. You know what? When conversion takes place, we see this... this, this, um, uh, this quick truth that was resonating in the heart of this, this man come to fruition with this song. Keep teaching your kids. Don't stop. They'll get it one of these days. Uh, the most significant um, revision took place. With this, this song has been revised a few times. Uh, one of the revision was by a man named George Whitfield. Some of you have heard of him, a contemporary of Wesley. He, he kind of trimmed off some, some of the uh, verses. I think there was 10 verses when he first started, but trimmed off some of the verses and changed a few words, added the melody to the song uh, Whitfield did. In fact, this song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, was not originally written, written by Charles Wesley with those words. The actual original song was, Hark How the Welkin Rings. Did you know that? Hark how the welkin rings. I'm not sh quite sure how that would sing, but it's an old English word, welkin. talks about celestial uh, um, world, the dwelling place of God. And, and, and Wesley says, you know, the Bible really never says that, that angels sing. They, 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 they praise God. So he didn't want to use that. He just said, you know, hark uh, how the, the welkin ring, how the celestial bodies worship um, um, God. But I'm... I'm Personally, I'm thankful for 
Whitfield, who changed the words from <laughs> Hark the Welkin Rings to Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I'm, I'm just thankful for that. Um, now, song, you know it. Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King, Peace on Earth, Mercy Mild, God and Sin is Reconciled, Joyful all the nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark, the herald angels sing. Stanza two. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sings. And stanza three is, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. You guys could hear it in your head, I'm sure. Hail the Son, S-U-N, of righteousness. It's not a mistake, that's correct. S-U-N, Son of righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen within, healing in his wings. Mild he lay his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing. That's, that's our song. We're going to sing it after um, I get done here. And what I've done is I've done last week. It's a little bit easier for me. I hope you can follow along. It's just see really three major themes coming from this carol, from the scriptures, of course, but from the song um, as we go through it. Um, three, three, three major themes. The exaltation of Christ. A lot of joyful rejoicing in this song. Then we'll see the reconciliation of Christ, the work of Christ. I think one of the major sections or the major piece of this song, Peace on Earth, uh, Mercy Mild, God and Sin is Reconciled. And then the incarnation. Charles Wesley wants us to see f- uh, and sing from what comes from the scriptures, of course, the incarnation of Christ. So the exaltation, the, the reconciliation, and the incarnation of Christ. Incarnation of Christ, okay? That's where we're headed. As you know, the hymn starts with this angelic announcement, this angelic exaltation of the advent of Christ, the first coming birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hark the herald angels sing, glory, majesty, value, worth to the newborn king. Now, we don't use that word hark a whole lot. At least I don't. Maybe you do. You're telling your children, you know, they're not listening. Hark, come here. You know, I don't know. Um, I don't. Um, but it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an important word, actually. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't just mean to hear what's being said. It, it means to listen, to, to really listen, to, to sit up, to pay attention. Something about to be, to be said is very important. And we see immediately that the, the, the angels are drawing our focus and our attention to what is about to be revealed in this hymn, of course, in the scriptures as well. So... A lot of this song is taken from Luke chapter 2, from Philippians chapter 2. But first, Luke chapter 2, as you know the story, if you have a Bible, you could turn there. Luke chapter 2, the the shepherds are in the region of Bethlehem. They're out in the field keeping watch of their flock at night. An angel of the Lord appears to them, chapter 2, verse 9. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were filled with fear. Actually, great fear. Great fear. And the angel said, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of joy. Nope. They had great fear and they're bringing news of great joy. That will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. you find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Listen up. Pay attention. We get busy in this season. We all do. I don't think there's a person in here that can't say, you know what, Christmas season is really busy. And, and, and I think we lose sight of what the Christmas story is all about. That's what Hark is all about, to pay attention. I don't know about you, but if you have a 
than an airplane, but I'm sure most of us have. And, and, the, and the, um, the flight attendant comes on, and they're going through the safety of the airplane. It's not like I'm like, okay. I'm like sending my last text message. I'm breaking out my magazine. I'm putting my earbuds in, and they're doing it. I'm not paying much. I hear it, but I'm not paying much attention. The angel has come, and he is giving a message. And that's what, that's what Wesley wants to say. Hark, listen up, pay attention. It is an arrival of a newborn king that's come to the world. And Wesley poetically captures the right response to this newborn king in this hymn. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. That's why I use the word exaltation of Christ. It literally means shouting with joy. With, with, it has to do with this unashamed confidence. Nothing will hold me back. I'm going to shout with joy. Jesus is the king. He's entered the world. He came in the world not in the reign of, for a reign of terror, but a campaign of salvation to die for sins. And it should be exalted in. It should be rejoiced in. It should be proclaimed with great joy. The king has come. Not just the king of the Jews, but for all the people. In Matthew chapter 2, it says that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, uh, days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born? The king, the king of the Jews. We saw a star, we came to worship him. But in Luke chapter 2, it says, For unto us a child is born. We saw this. The day in the city of David, a Savior. It was Christ the Lord. So he, he is King. He is Lord. He is Savior. And we've seen this as we've been studying the book of Isaiah together. We've learned that Jesus is the King, the mighty ruler, who will reign and rule as King over all the earth. But we also learned, as we've studied even Second Samuel and now in Isaiah, that Kings make bad choices. That, that kings make bad decisions, and their bad decisions implicate all those in which they are ruling over. Unless the king is perfect, righteous, and always just, who loves, serves, and provides, and protects his people, it always goes bad. But Jesus is the king, Lord, reigning, ruler, savior, who is always good who is always gracious, who will reign and rule in righteousness and justice over the whole universe. Therefore, he says, joyful all the nations rise. All the nations join the triumph of the skies with angelic hosts proclaim, sing, rejoice. Christ is born in Bethlehem. Stanza 2 in the first verse, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. There's a rejoicing in the lordship of Christ. There's a rejoicing in the sovereign reigning ruling of Christ. And two things I want to recognize is before we move on to the next point. Two things. One is the angels here worship God. The angels worship God. They are not to be worshipped. Christ is the one preeminent over all creation. Therefore, he alone is worthy of worship. In fact, in the scriptures, when you see angels showing up, anyone bows in worship to an angel, they are rebuked. Because there's only one worthy of worship, and that is our God. All other worship, all other worship is called idolatry. Jesus is worshiped. In the past, in the present, excuse me, on earth and then in eternity. In fact, Revelation chapter 5, John says, I looked, I heard a voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands upon ten thousands. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength. Honor and glory and praise. Jesus, uh, the angels worship God because God is worthy of our worship. Secondly, angels are rejoicing not in the missio day, not in the mission of the Savior. The angels are worshiping and praising and exalting the Lord because of the faithfulness, beauty, and glory of God himself. They are praising God, worshiping God because of who he is. There's no need for angels 
to worship for redemption, for they are not privy or permitted the benefits of the work of redemption. It is through Christ and Christ alone. Therefore, they are worshiping and celebrating the work that God has done, the faithfulness of God in saving mankind. They're celebrating God's goodness, his greatness and faithfulness in his work of redemption. In fact, Hebrews tells us that, that this is the things, that salvation is the things which angels long to look into. We, on the other hand, we rejoice. We celebrate not only who God is and his faithfulness and gentleness, his greatness and goodness. We rejoice in the mission, in the mission of redemption. That's why the angel said, don't fear. We have good news of great joy. All the people this day is born in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So are you exalting Christ this season? Are you rejoicing in the Savior of your sins? Listen, one can only rejoice in a Savior when one sees the need of a Savior. In fact, I believe the level of joy you experience in your life is driven by, sustained by the depth of your experience of your need of a Savior. In other words, what you're experiencing in your soul that you need someone to save you from your sin. A true understanding of the grace of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. A true understanding that will bring rejoicing to the soul. I'm reminded of a story in Luke, again, Luke chapter 7. Jesus is invited to the home of the Pharisees, a religious, very religious, strict group. And while dining in there, a woman comes walking in, which is it's open air those days. You've been to Europe, you'll, you, you'll know what that looks like. And a woman comes in in the city, and she was what they call a sinner. And she comes in with this expensive alabaster vial of perfume. And while standing behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, she begins to wipe his feet with her tears. and Kept wiping them with her hair of her head and kissing his feet and began anointing his feet with perfume. And when religious people, self-righteous religious people that they saw that, they said to themselves, man, if this guy was a prophet like he says he is, he would know what kind of person this woman is. She's a sinner. Jesus turned to Simon, the home in which he was at, and he said, let me ask you something. Let me tell you something. He says, a certain money lender had two debtors. Someone owed him money. One owed 500 denarii and the other just 50. 550. They couldn't pay, and the man turned around and forgave them both of their debt. Which one, Simon, do you think will love him more? Simon thought for a minute. He says, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt, the 500, not the 50 denarii. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, you see this lady, you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. She gave me, you, you gave me no kiss. They would kiss on the cheek when they would greet one another. He said, you gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who can forgive sins? Good question. Only God can. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. No one wants to wallow in their sins. That's not what I'm suggesting. But the greater awareness of the depth of our sins, we've been forgiven much, each and every one of us. The greater awareness of the depth of our sins that we have been forgiven, the greater the exaltation of God's goodness, God's mercy, God's grace in the good news of the gospel. The city of David, a savior as Christ the Lord has been born, born. A joyless, a joyless Christian is a mark or could be a mark of self-righteousness. That's what that story tells us. That, that's why there's such rejoicing in the New Testament. They're waiting for the Savior. Self-righteousness 
moral superiority cannot exist when one is humbled by their sin. Listen, if you are self-righteous, it'll generate an attitude of moral superiority, a lack of mercy, a joyless bondage. But when you see the depth of our sin and the greatness, we just sang about it. The first song, your mercy is more. The elder and the prodigal son, the story of that parable shows the characteristics of someone with the attitude and action of self-righteousness. But a heart that knows the depth of their sin and the depth, the greater depth of God's grace will show itself with joy, exaltation in both attitude and our action. The exaltation of Christ. We see rejoicing all around the Christmas story. And Wesley wants to bring that to forbear. Next, we see the reconciliation of Christ. My favorite verse in the song. Uh, You might have one. I have one too. Peace on earth. Mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. Okay. Then the third stanza, we see, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Okay. All of this, Wesley wants to bring to the forefront and speaks of the work of Christ. Again, we see in Luke chapter 2, with these angels proclaiming and glorifying God, they say in verse 14, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, part of the problem with interpreting that verse, and if you have a King James Bible verse, a King James Bible version, they don't actually get it right. Uh, the ESV does a great job. Uh, in the King James, it says this, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Okay, notice the difference. The, the King James Bible and other versions... Um, It almost sounds like the coming of Jesus announcing, the birth of Jesus announcing this peace on the earth. Actually, goodwill in a genitive sense means this. On earth, peace among men whom God has graciously chosen. Okay? His sovereign delight, his mercy, his peace rest upon those in whom he is pleased. It's not an announcement of peace to the earth. That's not what it says. That's not what the the scriptures teach. In fact, the announcement of the angel that the peace of Christ has come, is an absolute and objective peace. It's something that we receive while on earth. In fact, look what it says here. Look, I mean, in the, in the song, he talks about peace on earth, mercy mild. Mercy is mild. You know what that means? His mercy, his, his kindness is, is gentle. It's not harsh. It's pleasant, not cruel. It's gentle, not unkind. Come to me, Jesus said, all who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Rest in me. Take upon you, uh, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle, I'm lowly, I'm meek at heart, you'll find rest for your souls. His, his mercy is mild. What did Christ bring? What kind of peace then is Christ bring to the earth? Let me tell you what it's not. It's not sudden absence of conflict. Duh. If that were the case, when he came in the first time as his baby born, there'll be no more wars, no more hatred, no more racial unrest, no more greed, no more bloodshed. But there is, and there will be. We learned last week it's going to keep happening until the king of kings comes with his kingdom and there's a full restoration of the kingdom and the fullness at the end of the age. Things are going to go bad. The reason for Jesus and the reason for the celebration of the peace of God is nothing to do really with internal peace either. That's not what the angel is declaring. It's not just vegetating on this wonderful song and finding peace. So you ever see one of those? They got them at a place where I get my hair cut. They got that little um, waterfall thing. That just... It just makes me want to run to the bathroom. But anyway, and and you're supposed to have this kind of like this, this peace... Paul said the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There is an inner peace that, that Christ brings, but that's not what he's talking about. That is subjective peace. That is fickle. That, that comes and goes, right? We have the peace of God. We're singing these songs. Everything is wonderful. Then we get in our car, turn on the news, and everything is not so wonderful anymore. And we're saying, all right, give me the peace of God. Give me the peace of God. It's, it's relative. It's fickle. That's not what the angels are declaring. In fact, Wesley knows that. 
He knows that the peace that Christ has established is between the once hostile relationship between a holy God and a sinful people. Reconciliation where enmity and hatred once reigned now has been reconciled. It's objective. Peace not between us, not between nations, not even peace in us is what he's talking about. Peace between a God who is holy and a man who is sinful. Colossians 1.21, I know I have 19 up there, but Colossians 1.21 says this, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. That, that's how we were. That's who we were before we were reconciled. We were alienated. Not just alienated. Look what he says. Hostile. In our minds. We're at war with God. In our minds, we've done evil, both mental and moral alienation. Attitude and, and action, thinking and desires. And you just can't walk into the holy presence of a holy God and say, you know what, I'm sorry. Any more than a murderer or, 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 or a bank robber can walk into a judge and say, you know what, yeah, I did it. I'm sorry. And he's gonna, you expect him to go uh, as a free person. When we violate laws, we're in, a, we're in an unreconciled relationship and condition with our community. That's the basis of our system. How much more when we break God's holy law? We know that debts need to be paid. And the debt of society does not compare to the debt that we, you and I, owe to a holy God because of our sin. But praise God. But praise God. In this unreconciled condition, in this hostile condition... We have been reconciled. Colossians 1.19, right before Paul announces what we were, he tells us what's, what it is now. For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. How? By the blood of his cross. Through the blood of his cross. In order to have peace to, with God, the, between God and man, to be reconciled with God, there must be an exchange. There must be a payment made. And God gives us, by his grace, the means by which we can be reconciled. It is, is the shedding of blood. We saw that in the Old Testament. Someone must die. Sin must be atoned for. Jesus is that atonement. He reconciles us. He gives us the reconciled relationship and he brings us peace. Some of you here may have never surrendered, may have never surrendered yourself to Christ by receiving him as Savior and Lord and receiving forgiveness of sins. If you don't do that, if, if you're here and you've not bowed your knee to the king and recognize all that Christ has done for you on the cross, forgiving you of your sins, you're not only unforgiven, you are alienated from God. You are alienated from God. The Bible says you're an enemy of God. You're at enmity with God. You're at war with him. It's not just la-di-da, I don't, I don't really want to believe. I, I'm not, I don't want to really bow my knee. I just want to go about my life. No, no, it don't work that way. Either you're reconciled with God or through Christ, or you are an enemy with God. I implore you, as the scriptures do, bow before him, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord who died on the cross, who rose from the dead. Believe in your heart that he's the savior from sin, from your sin, and declared uh, by the cross that you have now been reconciled to a holy God. This is not subjective peace. This is objective and absolute peace with a holy God. Now, God loves you. God, God loves everyone. But he's also repulsed and filled with indignation because of our sin. He's a holy God. He must pour out wrath on sin in order to remain who he is. But at the cross, what Jesus did at the cross, we can have peace with God. God the Father poured his wrath, his fury, his indignation on his son who died in our place and for our sin as our sin substitute. But in order to receive that, you have to recognize that I'm an enemy of God. I, I am outside of the presence of God. I, I'm that enmity with God. I, I'm an enemy of God. And, and, and I, I just need to surrender and recognize what Christ has done. 
Some of you here this morning may be walking in with, 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 with a guilty conscience, maybe sins that are present, maybe sins that have been done a while ago and you just can't shake it. You're trying to you know, get this peace, this reconciled relationship with God, I should say, on your own. But Jesus came to do that for you. You can't do it. You can't earn it. You can't reconcile yourself to a holy God. Jesus already did that. We can have peace with God by grace through faith in Christ. Then we can sing, as Wesley says, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Prince means Lord. He's the ruler of peace. You, you won't have this peace until he's the ruler of peace. We want to bow our knee to the King of Kings. And Wesley goes on to sing, Hail the Son of Righteousness. Now, again, I said before, S-U-N is the proper reading. It's not S-O-N, it's S-U-N. And it's referring to a prophecy, actually, in Malachi. What does Italians like to say? Malachi. <laughs> Malachi, last book of the Old Testament, but for you who fear my name, the Son, S-U-N, of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Sound familiar? You shall go out. You shall go out leaping like calves, calves from the stall. The picture here is that of a, a divine bearer of justice that's appearing like the dawn. Well, in Second Samuel, David, King David, says that God revealed to him. He said this: When one rules over men in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of the Lord. He is like the light of morning at sunrise. Light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning. Like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. You see, see what he's saying? In, 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 in antiquity, in, in ancient Near East, it was common to depict the, the sun's rays as the wings of a bird. And, and connection with healing comes from this imagery of birds' uh, protective wings as the sun is rising. The rays of the sun would, would, would radiate. It would bring healing, broken hearts, and twisted minds. And he or she who is uh, part of that would be awakened to new life as, as the sun rises and brings new life to the earth, brings joy as you shall go forth and leap as calves from the stall, there's a, there's a celebration. And what, what, what Malachi is saying and what Wesley wants us to know is that Jesus is the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness. The true ray of sunshine that radiates and heals the broken hearts. He awakens us to a new life as the sun awakens the spring. Light and life to all he brings. That's what all that is about. He's the sun. He's the light. He is the life. He is the one that brings the joyous new days of rejoicing. It's the promise. Healing within his wings. His light into our darkness. Matthew 4, 16. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. Family, Jesus is that sun. He is the raising of that sunshine. He is the healing one. He brings forgiveness. And I will go so far to say that when he is that son of righteousness, it is his righteousness. It is his perfect life that's given to us, imputed to us by faith. You see, when you are forgiven of our sins, we've been washed from our sins. Our sins are no longer held against us. But we still need to be perfect as God is perfect and none of us are but in faith the perfect life of Christ is given to us counted or the Bible says imputed to our account that we can stand before God not only forgiven of our sins but have fully fulfilled the entire holy requirements of God because we are in Christ and Christ has done it and we sing about the perfect righteousness of Christ we can't reconcile ourselves to God God has to do it for us. Jesus lived that perfect life. Jesus dies on the cross. Jesus rises from the dead. And he brings peace between sinful man and a holy God. That's what Wesley wants to sing. That's what the Christmas story is about. The exaltation, the reconciliation, and finally the incarnation. Stanza two. Second line. Late in time behold him come. Offspring of 
a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Wesley wants us to see from the scriptures the incarnation of Christ. The miracle of God coming to us in the flesh. God taking on humanity and living among us. So we've seen this in Isaiah as well. The prophecy concerning the virgin birth. His name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Like all of the miracles, family, like all of the miracles God has done, there's a certain mystery behind the miracle that cannot be explained. That's why it's called a miracle. R.C. Sproul. A miracle is an extraordinary work performed by the immediate power of God in the external perceivable world, which is an act against nature that only God can do. End quote. The miracle of God in the incarnation. Wesley, when he says late in time, you see that? Late in time, behold him come. It's not like late in time like Jesus was, like he, he missed the boat. He was late. <laughs> he wasn't on time. That's not what Wesley's trying. Wesley's trying to express what the scriptures teach about Jesus coming in the latter days, Hebrews chapter 1, in the last days of redemption history. The promise was right on schedule. The appointment of God. Hundreds of years after God's people were waiting at the right time, the time of God's appointment, Jesus comes into the world. Not our timetable, his timetable. Not our purposes, but his purposes. His plan, not our plans that fit in his perfect timing. Okay? Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come. In other words, when God has said it is now. God sent forth his son. Born of a woman. Born under the law. For why? For what? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as son. Born of a woman, born of a woman, born of a virgin girl. We saw it again in Isaiah 7.14. I put the verse up there. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. You shall call his name what? Emmanuel. Now there's all, I mentioned this, uh, you probably don't remember, back in Isaiah 7 too. There's all kinds of... Um, I don't want to say argument, but different thoughts on the word virgin in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. The word virgin there is not the actual Hebrew word for virgin. It's Alma, which means a girl of, of um, marriageable age. So people say, well, it could mean virgin. It could mean just of a, a woman of marriageable age. And, and there's, a, there's a back and forth with that, with that word. Well, as far as I'm concerned, the debate ends... When God the Holy Spirit said in Matthew chapter 1, the baby is from the Holy Spirit, Mary will bear a son, he shall save his people from their sins, and this took place to fulfill what the Lord spoken by the prophet, that's Isaiah, and God the Holy Spirit said, behold a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he called his name Emmanuel. End of argument. I don't know why they're wasting the ink. It's right there. Jesus' unique Birth is a fulfillment of prophecy. The supernatural birth, in many ways, is the mystery. But there are some things we can know about the incarnation. We see right here. Jesus had two natures. Jesus was fully human, born of a woman, a mom, and fully divine, a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. That is what we're told in Luke 1. Again, now, Mary, Mary knows, Mary went to, you know, probably public school. I don't know. She probably took health class, right? You, you're you're going to have a baby. You're going to conceive a son. Really? How's that going to happen? Reasonable question. I'm a virgin. There it is. And the angel said, all right, yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called the Holy, will be called Holy, the Son of God. Fully man, fully God. That's why Wesley sings in this song he's getting to is this 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 um, fully man and fully God, yet veiled in flesh, covered in flesh. 
the Godhead see. The word Godhead is another word for deity. Hail the incarnate. That's, that literally means in the flesh. Hail incarnate deity. He's talking about the incarnation. That Jesus came and lived among us. And quite honestly, Isaiah 53 tells us that when he came, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. It wasn't like he was walking down the street. I don't know if you were growing up. I know I was growing up. One of those giant Bibles. I mentioned this before. I mean, you would, if an intruder came, just throw it at him, you know. And, and there were pictures of not only Jesus, but with these halos. As if you're like, yeah, I could see him coming in the crowd. Look at the glow. Like, that's not what happened. Nothing in his appearance that we are drawn to his majesty. But he was pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. That's a reference to John 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh. Lived tabernacled, dwelled among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus dwelt. He lived. He could hug. He could speak. He was among them. He lived among them. And family, that tells us this Christmas season that Jesus shared our experience. Jesus shared our existence. Jesus shared our temptation yet without sin. And that's important to remember I mean, there's a category that Jesus is not like us, God in the flesh, but he shared the human experiences. He shared he understands real pain. He shared and understands not only real pain, but real rejection, real struggles, real betrayal, real hunger, real loneliness, and real slander because of his incarnation. Jesus knows how you feel and what you're going through. He lived it. Nothing, nothing, nothing. You and I have gone through or will ever go through that he won't understand. In fact, probably experienced it in much greater degree. And yet he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And if you're a follower of Christ this morning, the Christmas story tells us that God is not only with us. God will not only not forsake us, as we'll see in a moment. God is in you. In the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. The one going through the struggles, the one going through the pain, the one going through the rejection, the one going through the loneliness. God is with you and God is in you. Even on the time of our death. Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are what? With me. And stanza three to close. Mild he lays his glory by. Mild he lays his glory by. Take it from Philippians 2.6. Who though he was in the form of God, form not shape, but an intrinsic nature, an outward expression of the intrinsic nature of God himself, in the form of God, God himself. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. We could talk about that forever, I won't, but what Wesley picks up is that he has stepped out of his glory, his place in glory. He not equality, Quality with God, a thing to be crass, but emptied himself. How? Took on a form of a servant, born in the likeness of men, found in human form. He humbled himself, Jesus humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, family, the deity of Christ gives him the power and authority and the right to forgive sin, for all sins are ultimately against God. And yet his humanity gives him the connection the association and the relationship to humans to care for, to, to, to forgive human sin. The animal sacrifice in the Old Testament, listen, were insufficient. When the priest would sacrifice the animals, it was insufficient because it lacked the identity between the one who was offering the sacrifice and the one doing the offering. Blood of animals could never atone for human life, for human sin. Jesus, the greater sacrifice, who took on the incarnation, who at the incarnation took on humanity, identified with us in our nature, yet lived a sinless life so that he can atone for sin. That's what Hebrews 10 was getting at. Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, look what it says, which can never take away sins. But when Christ offered himself, When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, 
He sat down. Sacrifices are over. No more needed. Sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Because Jesus, both God and man, the shedding of his blood alone, is able to pay the atonement price through his sinless life and substitutionary death. And because he lays his glory by, look what it says last, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. The band can come on up. We're going to end on that right here. Just bear with me another two minutes. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. You know what he's saying? He's saying that Jesus was born to remove the curse that was brought by Adam's sin to all the world. That curse, what is it? Paul says the wages of sin is death. And Jesus Christ comes that man no more may die. Death has been defeated. Sin has been forgiven. Life has been granted. And the guarantee is a new birth. (laughs) That's what he said. Give them the second birth. Jesus told Nicodemus, unless you are born again, the second birth, unless you're born again, you cannot see, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And through the work of Christ, through his perfect life, his atonement on the cross, and his resurrection from the grave, the giving of the Holy Spirit, we can have that second birth. In fact, Ephesians tells us, in Christ, you also heard the truth of the gospel, the word of truth, and believed in Christ, and were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, chapter 4, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Jesus told Mary and Martha at the grave of their brother, I'm the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Let's stand together. Family, hark the herald angels sing. He is Lord. Listen. Not just listen. Look here, respond. Jesus comes to restore this relationship. The, the relationship that has been broken because of our sin with God. He, he took on flesh so that he can save us from sin and death. And he invites us, all of us, to worship him. But let, let's pay attention to this song. Let's look to God. Let's worship him. Have you trusted him today? Will you rely upon him today? Will you rest in his work of salvation for you today? Will you sing rejoicing and exulting in Christ for all that he has done in the incarnation and his reconciliation? I pray you will not leave here without trusting Christ. Father, we pray, Lord, as your word is being preached, as the truth of the gospel is being told, and now the truth of the gospel is being sung, Lord, you would grant faith to those who don't know you, and Lord, strength and encouragement to those who do. Lord, that we together as one body will worship you in spirit and in truth, recognizing, Lord God, that we have a king. We will rejoice in who he is, and we will recognize the work he has done. And Lord, we are so thankful. Help us, Lord, to worship you now as we continue to sing in Jesus' good name. Amen. Joyful.